You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health Podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Hello, I'm Teresa McKee, your host for A Mindful Moment. Thank you for joining me as we explore ways to increase mindfulness in our day-to-day experiences. Mindfulness is presence, awareness. It's paying attention to what's happening within us and around us. Mindfulness increases our emotional, physical, and mental well-being. It can also enhance our focus and productivity, and there are many health benefits from practicing mindfulness and meditation, from lowering blood pressure to increased longevity. Perhaps most importantly in today's chaotic world, mindfulness strengthens our ability to be more compassionate to ourselves as well as others. We've talked before about our inner guidance systems, or our inner guideposts. When we consciously make decisions, we compare the potential decision to our inner guidepost to evaluate whether it is in alignment with who we are or who we want to be or not. But most people make many decisions unconsciously, through habit or frequently, based on whether something feels good or bad. Since mindfulness encourages non-judgment, I think a more accurate description would be whether something feels like it would create comfort or discomfort. The problem with making decisions this way is that those decisions may not be serving us or others. Consider all of the activities in life that create some discomfort, but are actually in our best interest. Medicine, for example, if we're unwell. The medicine may cause some discomfort, but may also help restore our health. Meditation is another good example. There are a multitude of benefits from practicing meditation, but many experience a range of discomforts in doing so. Kale, Brussels sprouts, exercise, conflict, all may at least initially create discomfort, but all can lead to positive outcomes. Making decisions to avoid discomfort eliminates the potential for activities that best serve us. On the flip side, If we make decisions in seeking comfort only, consider the potential calamities. 
junk food, smoking, drinking, drugs, compulsive shopping. Well, the list goes on. In our never-ending search for happiness, we sabotage ourselves through comfort-seeking versus taking the time to consider whether our actions are in alignment with our inner guidance system or out of alignment. All of our decisions come from somewhere in the mind, so perhaps if we better understood the mechanics of what's going on upstairs, we could make changes in order to make better decisions. I recently had a conversation with Leonard Perlmutter, the founder and director of the American Meditation Institute. If you've ever studied yoga, you might be familiar with his comprehensive holistic mind-body medicine program, The Heart and Science of Yoga, which is accredited by both the American Medical Association and the American Nurses Association. His newest book, Your Conscience, The Key to Unlock Limitless Wisdom and Creativity and Solve All of Life's Challenges, is a simple, logical introduction to how your mind works and the perfect entry point for anyone who wants to live a more fulfilling life simply by learning to depend on their conscience. Welcome, Leonard. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. I enjoyed reading the book, and I think maybe the best place to start would be to ask you, what are the four functions of the mind, since that is really the heart of the book? Well, thank you for acknowledging that that's the heart of the book. You know, the heart of the book is the four functions of the mind, which is a concept that I know no one in in my frame of reference, uh, whoever had a teacher who taught us about how the mind works and what the different functions are. Of course, we all had an intuitive feeling that there were different voices going on uh, between the ears, but nothing uh, ever concrete and helpful. But there are four functions of the mind. And the reason that that's so important is because the mind is what motivates the bodies to act. And actions lead to consequences. So right now, we know what the consequences are. We want to be happy. We want to be healthy. And we want to be secure. I think that's pretty common to most people. However, because we're really not aware of how the mind works, we don't really have influence over whether or not we're going to really become happy. We have to take other people's opinions. It's all hearsay. You know, we see something on television or a friend says uh, something, and we think, we hope, it will make us happy. But that's very rare. And it's certainly not as long-lasting as we would wish. So let's go inside our mind just for a moment. There's four functions. Ego. Ego is interesting because it's hardwired to the reptilian brain. And the reptilian brain is all about self-preservation and the fear of being annihilated. So the ego always divides up every relationship in two halves. One half, the ego says, this is pleasant, it's good, let's reprise it. The other half, the ego says, this is unpleasant, this is bad, let's avoid it. But we already know from our limited perspective as human beings on this planet, that which is pleasant isn't always good for us, that which is unpleasant isn't always bad for us. So if I become habituated to serving only things I like and avoiding things I don't like, I am going to become mentally very inflexible. And the inflexibility of my mind is going to echo in the consciousness of every cell of my body. 
which means what? It means that, take the liver, for example. Instead of being relaxed and open to the world, the liver is as contracted as my mind. So, you know, it begs the question, is a contracted liver going to be able to serve me as well as it has the potential, as well as a relaxed liver? I don't really think so. Intuitively, it just seems like it's common sense. The second function of the mind, these are the senses and our logic. The senses and logic always ask the question that we hear, well, should I do it or should I not do it? Should I do it or should I not do it? And it's interesting because the mind continuously, and I would say habitually, extrudes our creative energy through our eyes, through our nostrils, through our mouth, through our ears, hands, and feet, so that we can look and smell and taste and hear and touch some aspects of the world in hopes that it's going to make me happy, in hopes that it'll make me secure or healthy. The senses are habituated and the mind is habituated to going out into the material world to look and smell and taste and hear and touch. The problem for us is we waste a lot of our creative energy on chasing rainbows that never materialize. That's the senses. Next comes the third function, which is the unconscious. This is the repository to everything that we deem essential to self-preservation. It's uh, our memories, our imagination for the future, everything that we think we're going to need. And if the truth be known, much of the unconscious mind is filled with faulty concepts. And we can't really blame ourselves uh, that much for that because we got a lot of that software from mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or my brothers or sisters or friends in school or teachers or celebrities. We pick up these habits without inspecting them. So those are the first three, ego, senses, and unconscious mind. And what's really interesting about the three of them is they only have a narrow perspective on what's to be done and what's not to be done. They're often wrong, but they're also never in doubt. And they're loud, and they're pushy, and they're insistent. Then there's the conscience. The conscience is a divine gift, because the conscience is the only function of the mind that can discriminate, determine, judge, and decide. What that means is that every single choice we have ever made in our lives and every choice that we will ever make in our lives is always made by the conscience. Everybody uses the conscience to decide what's to be done and what's not to be done, even though we're not even consciously aware of that. But that's the way it is because it's the only function that can decide. The other three, ego, senses, and unconscious mind, they're more like counselors. They counsel us from their limited perspective. So the conscience can always make the decision, unlike the other functions. And the conscience acts as a mirror, and it can reflect wisdom from the super-conscious portion of the mind. Now, that sounds like poetry or metaphor, but it's not. It's beyond the conscious mind, and it's beyond the unconscious mind, and it's the same portion of the mind where Albert Einstein saw mathematical equations. 
It's the same portion of the mind where Paul McCartney hears beautiful melodies. Doesn't mean I'm going to become a songwriter. Doesn't mean that you're going to become a physicist. What it does mean is that if we can convince the ego senses an unconscious mind to quiet down a little bit and let the conscience do what it has the capability to do, reflect wisdom from the superconscious portion of the mind, then the conscience can bring that wisdom into our conscious mind. And we can base our thoughts, words, and actions on that. But it doesn't always work that way because nobody has taught us how to train and parent the ego senses and unconscious mind to quiet down, to listen to the conscience. And so the noise of the ego senses and unconscious mind overwhelms the capacity of the conscience to reflect perfect wisdom from the superconscious portion of the mind. In that case, because the conscience is the only function that can make a decision, it can only make the decision based on the advice that it can hear, namely from the ego senses and unconscious mind. And so what the conscience winds up doing is rubber stamping choices that have a limited perspective. I will say sometimes they're correct. I mean, I need an ego. I need a healthy ego right now to have this conversation and make sense. I need a healthy ego to drive an automobile. I don't want to get rid of the ego. I don't want to get rid of the senses because I enjoy sense gratifications. I enjoy a good meal. And some of the things in the unconscious mind are very helpful, but not everything. So our job, our work in every relationship, regardless what the relationship is, whether it's personal, whether it's professional, whether it has to do with food choices or sleep choices, regardless of what it is, our job, our work in every relationship is to parent the ego senses and unconscious mind to encourage them for the sake of an experiment to support the conscience and see what really happens. In the book, you talk about the main part of the book is to educate because we're not taught. I have that same philosophy about mindfulness all the time. Like, why aren't we taught this starting, you know, in kindergarten or elementary school? And we're just starting to see little bits of it. Hopefully in the future, that will be the case. But one of the things that I really admired about how you go about sort of instructing how we parent these aspects is through experiments, as you just mentioned. So I was wondering if you could give us a couple of examples of experiments we could try to get started on this path. Sure. First thing that we have to understand is the highest principle of yoga science is a concept called ahimsa, which means non-injury, non-harming. How does that translate into uh, doing experiments? Well, it translates into everything that we do. We're asked not to take on too much too soon, right? If we wanted to build muscles and we never did anything like that before, the last thing we want to do is lift up 100 pounds or 200 pounds. We're not prepared. Start with lower weight and then slowly, slowly add some weight and then we'll be lifting some substantial uh, weight and we'll be building muscles in the process and we won't be injuring ourselves. So let's say we just finished a wonderful meal and then the question arises, am I gonna brush my teeth? Am I not gonna brush my teeth? What does the ego say? Ah, that's not pleasant. What do the senses say? I'd prefer to have a second slice of apple pie. What does the unconscious say? I'm with the other two. But what does the conscience have to say? 
if the conscience can reflect wisdom from this superconscious portion of the mind, the conscience will say, Leonard, we're not doing a sprint here with this life. This is a marathon. We need healthy teeth. We need healthy gums. We need a strong, healthy immune system. Why don't we all go into the bathroom and brush our teeth and do a little experiment? And so it's up to me to convince the ego senses and unconscious mind that this is not the death of who they think they are. This is just change and growth. It's a novel concept. We just had dinner. Now let's go and brush our teeth. And so we do. We brush our teeth. Then we come back to the kitchen table and we have another discussion. How did it make you feel? What does the ego say? Well, it wasn't as bad as I thought. What did the senses say? Gee, you know, when the tongue glides over my teeth, I really enjoy the fact that the teeth are not mossy. And the unconscious mind says, well, I think that uh, they have something here. This is not too bad. And I'm still alive. <laughs> now we have created a small beachhead dealing with something that's insignificant. So I tell people, think about things that are seemingly insignificant, but they're really not. Like if you and your ego and senses and unconscious mind are really not interested in giving up a cookie, ask them if they'd be willing to give up a half a cookie or a quarter of a cookie just for the sake of an experiment. And that's what I advise. Yeah, that's great. I agree too that part of this is creating new habits too, overriding those old habits that don't serve us, right? I think always with change, including habits, baby steps are more effective if you're consistent. Like you really have to keep doing it. You can't just do it once and walk away. But if you can just consistently do these little things, it starts to create a shift. And I yeah. think once you get that momentum going, then it's a lot easier to keep adding to it. And if I, as the parent of the mind, can encourage them to do the experiment and have an enjoyable experience, that will broaden their limited perspective. And they'll feel that they can trust me the next time. Why do you think it's so hard for us to do some of these things? What do you think really gets in our way? Well, what gets in our way is our habit patterns. So again, the ego senses and unconscious mind are not coordinated. They're not, they've not been trained. And as a result, we often serve desires that are pleasant and comfortable and familiar and attractive. In the process, we create conflict between our actions in the world and our own superconscious wisdom. That reduces our willpower. You know, the culture is constantly saying, you know, if it looks pleasant, it smells pleasant, it tastes pleasant, it sounds pleasant, it feels pleasant, get it, buy it, you'll be happy. And so we do that over and over again, and we lose our capacity for self-reliance and responsibility. And in the process, we bankrupt our willpower. We don't have the willpower to do what's to be done and not do what's not to be done. That gets in our way. The mind is the problem, and the mind is the solution. Yes, I think with everything that's happened over the past year and a half, which is an upside, a lot of people are taking a pause now to think and reflect on their lives and where they're going and maybe what wasn't working so well before. And others are still sort of plowing along and not paying attention and and longing for yes, yesterday. Yes, and longing for yesterday, exactly. And in the book, you talk a little bit about several things that touch on this. Part of it is about the greater good, which many people are demonstrating that they don't have that awareness yet, right? To think of not just ourselves, but the greater good. And on the flip side, there are those that think 
practicing something like this means sacrifice or doing without or giving up on the joy in life when in fact that's the exact opposite. What do you think is the best way to strengthen our ability to do that inward work, you know, to look inside? And secondly, how would you describe the fact that even though you're looking inward and you are integrating not just what's best for you, but what's best in the bigger picture, but how do you still have fun and enjoy life with that? My experience is that I have more fun and less guilt by coordinating the functions of the mind. And we are required to make a sacrifice, but our vocabulary, our language is constantly triggering us in negative ways by defining words for us that are not correct. Sacrifice today, as you correctly have mentioned, is equated with denial. But that's not what it is at all. You know, if you, if you take a look at the etymological origin of sacrifice, it goes back to the Latin and then the Italian, sacrifaci. It means to make sacred. So what is fear? What is anger? What is selfish desire? Why, it's just energy, right? Because it motivates action. So it's energy. And what do we learn in fifth grade? Well, energy can't be created and it can't be destroyed, but it can be transformed. I can transform ice into water and water into steam. And I can also transform the contractive and debilitating, destructive form of fear and anger and greed into strategic reserves of healing energy, an increase in willpower, and an expansion of my creative capability through sacrifice. By giving it up, it's in giving that we receive, but we have to give up something that the personality has previously valued to receive something of value. So we have to give up the ground upon which the ego senses and unconscious mind are standing in order to have change and growth. So we really have to watch our vocabulary and the language. These are very triggering to us. They contract our minds and diminish our creative capacity to do the right thing. Another word that's so powerful is problem. I have a problem. I have a problem. Oh my gosh, that's so heavy. I can't even think about being creative because I have a problem. Well, I say we have no problems. The only thing we have are situations. Personality thinks I have a problem. I said, no, we don't. And I set that aside and I say, we have a situation. Now, with this situation, let's get to work. Let's be creative. Let's see if we can have some fun with this and do the best that we can. So that is a great inhibiting factor. And insofar as working for the greater good, every level of consciousness is seeking purpose. You know, the cell is in search of an organ to be of service to for a higher purpose. We are part of an organism. We're complicated animals. We are part of this very complicated holistic organism, humanity. And then you could even take it further than that because everything is connected. Everything is a manifestation of the one. And so if I act in service to the wisdom, the superconscious wisdom reflected by the conscience, 
not only will I benefit, but you will benefit, and the entire manifestation will benefit. And only I can do it, because I have this thought. You have your own thoughts. Absolutely. What kind of problems do you feel could be solved by really relying on our conscience? I don't believe that there are any problems that cannot be solved. If there's a situation that we're facing, it means that within us there is a solution because the supreme intelligence only provides the good. Even in a tragedy like the COVID pandemic, there's a silver lining. As you mentioned, people are going within. They're asking themselves, is there anything that I can do in my life? Is there anything that I can change in my life to make things better, uh, happier, more rewarding? So we have a a golden opportunity now to self-examine and not necessarily rely exclusively on hearsay from outside of ourselves, but to follow the precept of Shakespeare. Above all else, he wrote, to thine own self be true. Just try it and see what kind of work of art you will be creating instead of dying with the music inside. We do workshops. And a lot of times when I have a new group and I start talking about things along this subject line, I get the feedback that you can't think about yourself. It's selfish to look inward. It's selfish to try to figure out how to be happy. And it's shocking to me that so many people still have that mental construct, not understanding at first that if you are taking care of yourself and you're going inward and you're being the best you that you can be, you're of more service back out in the world. I really appreciated that you sort of took the approach with this book that it's educational. We're not taught anywhere unless you specifically seek it out, but you're certainly not taught automatically as a child or in the school systems or anything like that and would encourage people just to be open to the idea. And so I loved that you did experiments because I think we do learn that way through experiential learning. It starts to make sense. The highest learning. And you know, there's nothing wrong with being selfish as long as the S is a capital S. And it refers to the supreme intelligence. And my action is simply as an instrument to usher in that wisdom through this mind-body-sense complex. I really hope people get a lot out of this book. There's nothing difficult about the experiments. I don't even think it's that time-consuming, honestly. It's just a matter of deciding that you want to make some changes to really parent those aspects of the mind that perhaps are causing some poor decisions to be made and make better ones. And I think everyone could benefit from that. So I thank you so much for writing the book and for joining us today. Well, I appreciate it. And if people wanted to learn more about your work, where would they find you? Well, there's two websites. One is for the book, Your Conscience, and it is yourconscience.org. And I am the founder of the American Meditation Institute, and that's where I teach classes through. And the website is americanmeditation.org. Excellent. Well, thank you again so much. Well, thank you for the invitation. Uh, It's been a joy. I'm so grateful that Leonard took the time to join us today to break down the four functions in the mind involved in decision-making. There's nothing wrong with seeking comfort or pleasures. It's when we only seek comfort that we run into trouble. By understanding and managing our egos, staying alert to our habitual behaviors and making changes when needed, Recognizing that our senses, our bodies, are sending important information to the brain 
and focusing on and developing our consciences, our inner guideposts, we can experience the full richness of life. Why would we settle for anything less? Until next time. We can live better lives and create a better world. All it takes to get started is a mindful moment. Meditation is the most effective technique to strengthen mindfulness. The key to experiencing the full benefits of this practice is to meditate every day, even if you start with just a few minutes and work your way up to 20 to 30 minutes per session over time. Consistency counts, and the benefits are cumulative. So be kind to yourself and meditate daily. Each time your mind wanders away from the breath, simply return your focus to the breath. It is in this noticing that you're building your mindfulness skills. Your mind may wander a hundred times in just a couple of minutes, and that's normal. Each time you notice, that's mindfulness. Work to Live's Dynamic Coaching Certification Program is a self-paced online course series that strengthens emotional intelligence and mindfulness skills, along with relationship building, communication skills, time management, self-motivation, and more. Visit our website for an informational video on the program. You can also find resources for self and leadership development, as well as the latest books by authors we interview on this show. Go to worktoliveproductions.com slash book club to start shifting your quality of life today. And be sure to visit our YouTube channel at Work to Live, where you'll find videos of our interviews, animated shorts on daily living and working, guided meditations, and more. Please subscribe to A Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee wherever you get your favorite podcasts and rate this podcast so that others can find us. Follow us on social media at Work to Live. A Mindful Moment is written by Teresa McKee. The English version is hosted by Teresa McKee, and the Spanish version is translated and hosted by Paola Tile. Intro music, Retreat, by Jason Farnham. Outro music, Morning Stroll, by Josh Kirsch, MediaWrite Productions. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast is produced by Work to Live Productions.